Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 14, chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the, of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek the word of the Lord A priest in 20th century England giving a sermon once imagined a conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. Great, religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replied the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple, but where do your priests work and do their ritual? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But, but where do you offer sacrifices then to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. In our primary reading in the letter to the Hebrews today, our likely author, Apollos, is going to say something about Jesus that might not be very hard for us to grasp. But for the hypothetical pagan neighbor as pictured in our parable, it would have been almost incomprehensible to his original audience. For the last couple months now, Apollos has established this pattern in rhetoric that I think we're starting to, to get by now. He, he takes religious figures and concepts that his uh, audience would have naturally considered good and then holds them up before Jesus and says, but Jesus is better. 
however good you think Scripture is at revealing what God is like, Jesus is supremely better at revealing what God is like. However good you think angels are as a medium of God's power, Jesus is supremely better as a medium of God's power. However good you think Moses was as an authority for God's people, Jesus is supremely better as an authority for God's people. And now today it's the priests, particularly the priesthood that would have maintained the temple in Jerusalem. Apollos wants his audience to know that however good you think priests are for accessing God, Jesus is supremely better to give you access to God. But unlike his other comparisons so far, he does this the moment the topic comes up. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Apollo says that Jesus isn't just a priest. He isn't even a high priest. He is a great high priest. However, in Judaism, there was no one who held the title of great high priest. It did not exist. And so Apollos is bestowing a title to Jesus with a level of greatness that no one even had a category for. But If Jesus is better than any high priest in this respect, what does that mean for us? I think Apollo shows us four implications. So first, for starters, I think that means as the pastor, I'm not Jesus. Which, you know, should be obvious. But you'd be surprised how many people try to make their pastors a surrogate Jesus or how many pastors like to feel as needed as Jesus. But this is probably more of a subtle issue that I might think it can be subconscious for me for example if I need prayer and counsel and it comes from anyone else in the church that's not the pastor then it's insufficient you want me to talk to an elder when I'm in crisis nah nah what do they know oh you you want a a deacon to come pray for me before my surgery well I'll probably end up dying we're just saying something because it was just a root canal And y'all, don't get me wrong, I'm honored that you think I might have some wisdom to share. I love being able to pray for your needs when I get those prayer cards on Monday morning. But I am not the ultimate go-between for God and you. Jesus is. And because Jesus is, any person's prayers can be just as effective as the pastor because they all go through in Jesus' name. Or perhaps a second warning sign that I might be viewing my pastoral figure a bit too much like Jesus is that if I become aware of all of his or her humanity, then I get surprisingly uncomfortable. I recently had a pastoral colleague share with me recently that he had worked to lose a lot of unhealthy weight, about 25 pounds, and he was really proud of this. And so to, to kind of celebrate, he, he showed a, a posted a, a before and after photo of himself on social media, shirtless. It was a complete scandal at church. And to be clear... This was not a thirst trap. That was not the accusation leveled at him. It was rather as one church Karen told him, no one should see their pastor without a shirt. And I've experienced something 
too, similar. Uh, not here and not shirtless, but it still felt very weird. I distinctly remember uh, when I was younger, I, I gave a, a sermon where I talked about my struggles in my prayer life. And afterward, a, a woman came after me and after the service and said how uncomfortable that had made her feel hearing that from a preacher and that I probably should have just kept that part to myself. Y'all, if your pastor can't be a regular human with spiritual doubts and personal struggles, photos at the beach, perhaps it's because the normal humanity of that pastor is getting in the way of you pretending to view him or her as a go-between for God and yourself. And look, I like surfing, but Jesus is the only one who has ever really walked on water. And maybe our tendency to project priest-like status these days is less about pastors engaging in the external divine and more about maybe therapists instead because they can be very good resources for helping us sort out inner divine realities. But even your therapist is not Jesus either. Brene Brown might be a saint, but she ain't the Lord. All the white women are like, yeah, okay, convicted. But this also goes for your romantic partner as well. Don't put that on them. It will not serve you in the long run and it will not serve them either. When it comes to access to the divine, when it comes to the go-between for divinity and your spirit, Jesus is the one who is truly sufficient and only Jesus is truly reliable. But you know what might be better about Jesus being a kind of priest? Is that he is a priest that won't judge you. This is our second implication. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Look, I know every pastor is going to say that they are non-judgmental. But as a pastor, I have been really judged by other pastors. And so I know that they are probably operating under a very flexible definition of non-judgmental. Like, they won't judge you on your favorite barbecue sauces. Clearly, mustard base is the, the best answer. They're not going to judge you if you're from Ohio because that's not really your fault, Right? But they're going to judge you on just about everything else, especially when it comes to your personal struggles. But Apollos wants you to know that Jesus, despite being without sin, is not judging you for yours. You see, Jesus Christ as the God-man resolves the dilemma of divine aloofness and human religious teachers. Because on one hand, if God never became human... If God just remains primarily outside of time and space and matter, then God would be judging us for failing to live up to expectations in a situation that God's self never had to experience. But on the other hand, historically speaking, every major human religious figure in history that comes up with an answer to the meaning of life then places this impossible crushing burden on their followers. Here's what I mean. Take, for example, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. He, legend says, achieves enlightenment at age 35. This is super impressive. 
right? Like I haven't even achieved being debt free at age 35, much less karma free. Like the Buddha was like the Dave Ramsey of Nirvana. But then he tells his followers that it's on them to achieve the same thing. Excuse me? What? The bro cracks the impossible age-old secret of escaping the endless cycle of death and rebirth and suffering. And then he's like, well, I did it. Now you do it. No. No, I can't. And yet what is such good news about Jesus is that even though Jesus was sinless as God, he has sympathy for our weakness to sin. But also, even though Jesus had our same weaknesses as a human, he doesn't overcome sin only to leave us behind in our weaknesses. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Me. Since he himself is beset with weakness... Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Even though Jesus is God, he understands us. Yet even though Jesus was a human teacher, he has perpetual solidarity with us. Jesus is the great high priest, but he is less judgmental and more committed to us than other human priests. Yet Jesus doesn't just give us sufficient and reliable access to God. Jesus doesn't just help us without judgment as God. He also gives us equal standing before God. Here's our third implication. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of you might notice that this is the scripture that we cite on the prayer cards that you can write on each week. And the reason why we cite this is because I think it so beautifully demonstrates this reality. That we do not need to fear God's wrath. But rather we are invited to hope for God's blessing. You see in the Old Testament... Approaching God's throne was always a risky business. It was believed that if you showed up in the wrong way, if, if, if you lacked the proper purity, then things might not turn out so good for you. This is why as far back as Exodus, as we saw in our first reading this morning, we can read about Moses' brother Aaron, the first high priest, receiving instructions on how to approach the throne of God. Why does he have all these detailed instructions? Verse 13 tells us, So he won't die. And this is reasonable. Yeah. It's reasonable to be cautious about approaching the creator of the universe as a puny human. Every major religion that has ever existed acknowledges that whatever the divine is, is way more powerful than me. It's way more righteous than me. It's certainly way purer than me. By the properties intrinsic to divinity, God should be feared. If you don't know what the character of God is like. If I don't know how God thinks about me, 
it is reasonable for me to be scared of God. Is God fundamentally about wrath or mercy? Punishment or grace? You don't want to get that wrong. And so we hedge our bets for appeasing the wrathful possibility. But if I know what God thinks of me, if I know the character of God, then it becomes possible to approach the throne of God with intentionality. And so when we see that God through Jesus sacrificed himself for our sake, we now have objective evidence of what God thinks about me. You don't need to be afraid of God. If Jesus is your high priest, you can approach the throne of God without fear, without embarrassment, without shame, but rather with what? Boldness. John Chrysostom, you know I, I like quoting him, fourth century church leader, put it this way when he studied the letter of the Hebrews. He wrote, how is it that we should approach boldly? Because now it is a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. Therefore, boldly that we may obtain mercy, even such we are seeking, for the affair is one of great generosity, of royal gifting. Jesus was not only pure himself, so that he could enter the presence of God. He passes that purity on to you. And I know that might feel like a weird thing to pass on. And I know some of us have hang-ups around that word purity, and I understand. But I think it's important to know that I am pure before God. Because if I don't, the opposite of that is that I feel impure, defiled, dirty before God. And that is directly connected to a sense of shame. And there is a lot of people out there. There's a lot of media messages that want you to believe that in some way you are impure. That you are defiled. That you should feel shame. Because shame is how they control you. Shame is how they manipulate you. That's why you need to know that your past does not matter. That your weight does not matter. That your disability does not matter. That your annual income does not matter. That your gender does not matter. That your gender identity does not matter. That your orientation does not matter. Y'all, I don't care what Bible verses they throw at you. Don't let anyone ever tell you that either something you have done, much less something you are, means that you can't come to God and ask God boldly for mercy and grace. You are not impure. You can approach God without shame. Jesus is the great high priest, not them. 
And Jesus gives you equal standing before God. Now, if Apollos has not scandalized his Hebrew Christian audience enough yet with these previous three implications of Jesus being the great high priest, he begins to introduce one more truth about Jesus that may have been completely alien to them. Because so far, Jesus being the only sufficient and reliable access to God, Jesus not judging us as God, that Jesus gives us equal standing before God, these would have been understandable. They would have been conceivable in the first century. But then Apollo says this in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a mysterious ancient priest found in the book of Genesis, and Apollos is going to talk more about him at length in a few weeks from now, but that not, would not have been the scandalous part of the verse. Melchizedek is considered an idealized priest, and so you can see why Apollos is going to bring him in on this sermon about Jesus. No, the crazy thing that Apollos says is that after Jesus had been made perfect, that is, after completing his quest of dying and rising to new life, Jesus becomes the source of eternal salvation. This phrase is only used once in the entire Bible. And it means this. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't sufficient for temporary forgiveness, but permanent forgiveness. You see, up until this time, sacrifices for forgiveness always had an expiration date. The most important of these was once a year, the high priest would enter the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and he would offer up a sacrifice to God on behalf of the whole nation. But even this had to be done every single year. But this was, in fact, common sense for all ancient religion. There was no such thing in either Judaism or pagan religion as a sacrifice that brought permanent forgiveness. No one could even conceive of such a thing, or at least no religious institution would want to conceive of such a thing. Because why would you then need the religious institution if you've already experienced permanent forgiveness? It's like when an American company in the 90s ended up building the most reliable exercise machine ever. They actually ended up going bankrupt because their machine never broke and no one ever needed to buy a new one. The permanence of their product was actually bad for business. And sadly, a lot of religious institutions are careful not to repeat this error. They need you to need them. And keep coming back. But Apollos, in telling his Hebrew Christian audience, says that Jesus achieves salvation. Not just for a day. Not just for a month. Not even a whole year, but forever. This means that when I trust Jesus as my high priest... And Jesus as my sacrifice. All my sin is forgiven. Past, present, and even future. I have eternal salvation. And this also means that my standing before God 
is no longer contingent on any right practiced by a religious institution. Jesus is greater than any modern day priest or pastor. You see, the good news that Hebrews is showing us today is this. That if Jesus is your great high priest, everything that humanity has historically worried about God has become untrue. God is not distant or removed. God is accessible. God is not abandoning you in judgment. God is with you in solidarity. God is not to be feared. God can be approached by anyone without shame. God is not withholding forgiveness. God is extending the freedom of complete forgiveness. What kind of religion is this? It's no kind of religion at all. It's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ for the whole world. And you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Morning. Hi, Nan Sam. How are you doing? <laughs> this is the Sam is out. I'm filling in for the Q&A hot seat this morning. Um, got some good questions. Um, if we experience permanent forgiveness, does that not equate to people's carte blanche living however they want? Ah, great question. So yeah, this is the, it kind of pops up different places in the New Testament because like God's forgiveness and grace is so extravagant that some people are like, wait, does this mean we can just go crazy, right? But the, it always comes back to if you really internalize what God has done for you with the nature of God's forgiveness, uh, you will not want to just go carte blanche crazy. You'll actually want to live in response to the absolute beauty and amazing uh, nature of God's grace. And therefore, you will actually want to pursue a life that loves others well and loves God and works for the healing and renewal of the world. Um, and so, yeah, the age-old answer is if you get what it actually is, it will never actually draw you into a license to sin. Okay, so kind of a follow-up to that. Where, if any, is there a line crossed in how we live in the world in what it means to live a holy life, that is, a life committed to Jesus? Yeah, so, it, I mean... This is, this is where we got to be careful, right? There's like the, the lying cross, right? So when we talk about sin here at Parkside, we say, what is sin? We say sin is unjustifiable harm, right? And then we usually say that the sinful mentality is an idea of saying that either, God, I don't trust you to be good, or I don't trust you to be strong enough in my life. And that usually leads then to me being my own God, and then I do all sorts of damage and wrecking in the world. And so it's be careful to us, particularly when we're doing the setting, to say, here's the line. But we talk about here's the mentality that is either going to draw us into closer intimacy with God and put good into the world or a mentality that is going to put us away from God, make us our own gods, and put harm into the world. And so I would say that's, if we're going to talk about a line, that's where I would go to today. Um, all right. If the Hebrews consistently describe Jesus as being made perfect, does that mean Jesus was not perfect throughout his whole life? This is a fantastic question. In Hebrews, to be made perfect is not talking about moral perfection. It is a, a Greco-Roman concept, the idea that a, a hero goes on like a, an epic quest, and that when they complete the quest, they have, they have done all that their destiny has called them to do. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and rises again, Jesus is made perfect because Jesus fulfills his destiny. Um, and so also perfection is an important thing to note that perfection um, is not the same as sinless. Jesus is always called sinless, but Jesus is not necessarily always called perfect. Uh, and those two things are very different. Because, um, you know, you see Jesus, right? He gets, like, frustrated with his disciples, right? I used to see that and go, oh, wait, is that a sin, right? But it's Jesus is sinless, but he is not perfect. His perfection is completed through his entire life and ultimately through his, his cross and redemption. Those are excellent questions and very excellent answers. Um, those are all the time we have for this morning. There are some more questions that have come in. If you're watching this later or thinking about it during the day, please send us your questions, and Colin will address them tomorrow morning on Facebook. Cool. And if you don't follow us on Facebook, follow, and then you can post. And even if you missed it in the morning live stream, you can always come back and uh, watch it later in the day. It's always saved through the week. So Great. Thanks, Elaine.